You can be seated. Uh, we continue our service now, the service of the word, by recognizing and honor our, honoring our children's presence here among us. And we do it again, recognizing that the kingdom of God is revealed to these. So we do it honoring and recognizing them, but also recognizing that uh, we want to um, join with children, uh, both actually join with them and to learn from them their posture uh, of openness and, and uh, receptivity and mystery, um, especially in a season like this. So, kids, I see a couple. Be ready for your part. Children of God, the Lord be with you as you worship. Amen. Let's pray as we continue. God, we pray that you would send your spirit to illuminate this text for us and to illuminate uh, our lives for us so that we can be the kinds of people who not only hear your word, but the kinds of people uh, who receive your word and who are able uh, to hear your good news, to hear your gospel afresh, exactly where we need it, even tonight. And so we entrust ourselves to you trusting that uh, you are present here, ready to do that among us, and we just want to agree with it and join it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And there will be signs and sun and moon and stars, and on the earth distress of nations and perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great joy. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up. Raise your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. Christ the King, I proclaim to you that uh, this is fulfilled in our midst tonight. This is fulfilled in our midst tonight. Uh, Tonight is the first uh, Sunday of Advent. Advent uh, is about beginnings. Um, the word Advent, as, as many of you probably know, means arrival. And in Advent, we, we recognize, we celebrate, uh, we tune our attention to uh, God's arrival in our midst in the person of Jesus Christ, the first arrival. Uh, But not only do we turn our attention to God's first arrival in Jesus Christ, we also turn our attention to um, Jesus' return, the second advent. You probably heard that in the collect for the day. We're looking both backward and forward. We say now and in the time of this mortal life and when when your son came to visit us in great humility, and also in the last day when he shall come again in his glorious majesty. This is Advent. Advent is about beginnings, and it's about endings. It's about Jesus' first arrival, and it's about the fact that he's going to come again. And so we begin our year. This is the beginning of the Christian year. We begin our year. We're starting afresh. We're beginning by by tuning our attention to the fact that we live in the middle, in the midst of, 
Jesus' first advent and his second advent. Our beginning begins in the in-between. Our beginning begins in the in-between. And, and part of what we're listening for tonight as we're tuning our attention to the, to the beginnings is that what many of you guys may know is how you begin something, how you begin a journey often determines what the whole course of that journey is going to look like. And so what we're listening for right now, uh, what we're tuning our hearts and, and our ears uh, into during the season is, is not just a, a passing bit of time that we have that we're going to shake off and move on to something else. We're actually tuning our attention to what this whole journey is going to look like for us. Because how we begin is going to give shape to what the whole journey looks like, our whole journey with Jesus. And so here we are at the beginning in Advent, living in between the first and second arrival of God in Christ. And where we begin today is with the affirmation that Advent begins in the dark. Advent begins in the dark. A couple nights ago, I was uh, sitting actually in the dark. This was Friday night. I was sitting in the dark. Maybe others of you were up at 1130 uh, sitting in the dark where there there was much foreboding, right? Sitting in the dark in distress about what was coming uh, upon the world. (laughs) Um, Paying very close attention to the, uh, the radars and the storms that were coming that were coming through uh, eastern Oklahoma, uh, watching and waiting, being totally, feeling uh, totally helpless and, and out of control over what was approaching, what was uh, impending, the impending to- doom that was coming upon the world, not knowing exactly what to do. I'm like sitting on my couch, and I'm like, what do I even do? <laughs> like, I don't have any hatches to bind down or to batten down. Uh, like, everyone else was asleep. I didn't want to wake anybody up. Uh, but I, there I was in this moment of this kind of fretfulness, this anxiety, but also this frozenness of not knowing what to do um, in the face of the distress, the foreboding, the impending doom that was coming. In, in our day, just, just this week, uh, we have thunderstorms and tornadoes and earthquakes and international political intrigue and wars and rumors of wars. Welcome to Advent. Welcome to Advent. I don't, I don't know what you guys, uh, what, you, what comes to mind when you think of Advent, if you think of Advent at all. Maybe Advent is completely collapsed into the, the whole holiday Christmas season. I don't know if you think of like Frosty the Snowman or you think of baking cookies or you think of decorating or I don't know what you think of, but if we listen, if we tune our ears to how the church has thought of Advent and and the kind of gospel readings that the church draws our attention to during Advent, it's this kind of stuff. It's the tornadoes and the earthquakes and the impending doom and the wars and the rumors of wars and the distress and the foreboding and all of the darkness that characterizes life in between first, the first and second Advent. Welcome to Advent. Advent begins in the dark. In fact, there are many signs of darkness, not just even things like thunderstorms. Um, we think of 
signs of darkness that I've seen recently, uh, tear gas being fired at children who are themselves fleeing the darkness of their own home. We think of wildfires that destroy entire towns. Uh, We think of announcements of thousands of jobs being laid off, people whose lives and homes and families depend on these careers. And not to mention, I mean, this is just scratching the surface, not to mention um, the little things that I know that you can name and that that I could name that that are going on in our midst. The places of darkness and pain that exist in your own life. The signs of of foreboding that you, that you know all too well. We live in a world, in fact, where it's increasingly difficult to hide from the dark. We live in a world where it's increasingly difficult to hide from the dark. But even still in our world, um, when we're faced with the dark, we don't, the world doesn't offer us many options besides triumphalism or despair. When faced with the dark, the world doesn't offer us many options besides triumphalism or despair. Triumphalism is all about having the power or the privilege to be able to to overlook or ignore the darkness, or having the kind of arrogance to think that we can fix and figure out the darkness. Like, Like, we can get that done. We can figure that out. We know all the answers. And despair is that kind of uh, powerlessness. That feeling of there's just nothing that we can do. And that, and that despair, which I think is, is uh, increasingly characterizing our, all of our lives and the world that we live in, we see it as, as the fruits of despair of, of spin out in our lives, anxiety, um, drunkenness of different types, People seeking, because of the despair, because of the fact that there's nothing that we can do about this darkness, that we resort to all kinds of ways of numbing ourselves from the reality of the darkness. Sometimes numbing ourselves with actual drunkenness, and sometimes numbing ourselves with just like constant blitzes of holiday glitter. Maybe if I watch the Hallmark Channel enough times, (laughs) see enough of those Christmas movies. When, when you were confronted with the signs of the times, maybe with one of these things that I've named already, when you were confronted with the signs of the times, when this darkness, how, how do you feel? How do you uh, normally feel like you're responding, you want to respond to the signs of the times, to the darkness? Are, are you an alarmist? Are you a triumphalist? Are you an escapist? Do you tend uh, more towards, oh, we've got to fix this and figure out and solve all the problems? Or do you tend more toward despair and hopelessness? Maybe uh, you're in a season of life where you actually feel trapped by the darkness. Maybe you feel uh, like one of those elephants um, who is tethered to like a really tiny stake in the ground and feels completely uh, incapacitated and paralyzed by something like so small and benign. Do you feel trapped by the darkness? How do you respond when, when faced, when confronted with the signs of the times? 
How do you feel when you think about this question? How do I live between the first and the second advent? Christ the King, this advent, tonight, on this first Sunday of Advent, we embrace the good news that we are free to embody the hope that God's redemption in Christ is dawning, even in the dark. We are free this Advent to embody the hope that God's redemption in Christ is dawning, even in the dark. This first week of Advent, Christ invites us out of triumphalism or despair and into watchfulness, attentiveness, We don't have to escape. We don't have to fix or control. We don't have to numb. It's not even up to us, Christ the King. And when we embody this hope, we become signs of hope to a desperate world. In Luke chapter 21, uh, this is what Jesus is describing here. Jesus is describing how to embody hope at the intersection of real darkness and the dawning of God's redemption. Jesus is describing how to live in between his first and second advent. He's talking about how to embody hope at the intersection of real darkness and the dawning of God's redemption. What Jesus is getting at, what he's casting vision for, what he's inviting his disciples into is that it's actually possible to take the dark seriously without being trapped by it. It's actually possible to take the dark seriously, to look at it uh, with sober eyes without being trapped by it. And this is possible, Jesus says, because a new reality is dawning. A new reality is dawning. A new reality is being set in motion through him, by God through him. It's presently unfolding, and it's unwinding in the world, and it cannot be stopped. So this is one. This is a a tricky passage. Uh, I don't know how you feel like when you hear like a lot of uh, the language that Jesus uses in this passage. Two quick things um, to to just kind of set the context to help us hear uh, what Jesus is saying well in this passage. The first is understanding where this falls in Jesus's ministry. This is the is the very end of Jesus's ministry. He and his disciples are visiting Jerusalem for the last time. They've actually uh, come for. Uh, uh, to prepare for Passover. They come for the feast to prepare for Passover. A lot of people are coming into Jerusalem. And Jesus, um, at, the, uh, at the beginning of this conversation, is having this conversation with his disciples. Um, and Luke is, is uh, kind of ambiguous about it, but some of the other gospel writers name that the disciples themselves are walking around Jer- Jerusalem and they're making comments about how beautiful the temple is. They're like, look at these buildings and stones. This is gorgeous. This is beautiful. How wonderful this is. And then Jesus says, uh, see all this? Which, by the way, uh, the temple, this is, this is like, uh, it's going through a major renovation under King Herod. And this is, it's been like a 40-year renovation process. And, and tons and tons of money uh, has been poured into this. Um, and Jesus says, see all this? In three days, all of it's going to be torn down. Not one stone is going to be left on the other. And so what this does in the disciples' mind is it triggers a a conversation. 
it triggers a category for the disciples. And the category for the disciples that it triggers is the end times. Um, Because one of the things that the the disciples have, part of the expectation that they have uh, being brought up in in the Jewish faith and the Jewish story, is that there will come a day when God will return to judge the earth and to set up his kingdom. And in the way that they had heard the story, this was all going to happen at one time with one cataclysmic like kapow, and it's going to be this big thing. And so when Jesus mentions this, they're like, oh, Jesus is talking about the end times. And so then what the disciples say to Jesus is they say, you kind of seem like an insider into this stuff. Tell us. Tell us. Be our end times teacher. Tell us uh, when all these things will happen, uh, what order they will happen, um, so that we can know and we can take control and we can, we can uh, uh, be in charge when all this stuff takes place. And so uh, what Jesus does and what we're hearing is part of Jesus' answer to their question. And what's interesting is that what Jesus does is he refuses to answer their question. But what he does is he speaks apocalyptically. Anybody into apocalyptic kind of stuff here? Apocalyptic movies? Apocalyptic movies? Um, there's, a, there's a lot to say about, about apocalyptic uh, genre. And in fact, there's a lot going on in this text that I would love to talk to you about at some other time. I just don't have time to talk about it. So if you have questions, let's talk more after this. But a couple important things. Because what Jesus does in order to respond to his disciples is he starts talking apocalyptically. And when you start talking apocalyptically, one of, a couple things happen. One of the things that happen is that time gets weird. Um, the, the past, uh, the present, and the future kind of all mash down together into this glob of cataclysmic events, of lots of foreboding. And it's hard to tell the difference uh, uh, in time between what, what's, what's going on in the past, what's, what's Jesus talking about with the present, what's he talking about in the future. There's actually a wide range of this, but it all just seems uh, to collapse down uh, into, into itself. And the, and the thing about apocalyptic literature is that even though um, people want to figure out, they, they want to try to read it, apocalyptic uh, language, what Jesus is saying is all about this. It's all about how do we live... In light of what has happened in the past, in light of what is going on and bubbling in the present, and in light of what will happen in the future, how do we live in the present? And so when Jesus is using this language, he's talking about, he's trying to cast vision to his disciples for how to live in the present, for how to live in between the first and the second advent. Because one of the things that Jesus is doing is he's kind of blowing up the expectations of the disciples. Because all of this, God's return, the end times are going to look different than the disciples think they are. And in fact, time itself is going to be ripped open. And Jesus is, is prepping them for this. He's prepping their expectations for how to live as his disciples in the long haul. Because they're going to need to know how to live in between his first and second advent. And so note this. Jesus is not trying to scare his disciples into acting right. 
a lot of kind of end time stuff that you guys are probably familiar with is, is some of it, and, and the intensity of the language is a lot about trying to use fear and scare tactics, tactics into getting us to act right. But Jesus is not trying to scare, to use fear, uh, to get his disciples into acting right. Jesus' message is, is really clear in this part of, of Luke chapter 21. And, and it's just this. Jesus says, in light of what is coming, in light of all the signs, the foreboding, of the distress that's coming, raise your heads, stay awake, be watchful. Jesus' message to his disciples, the posture that he's inviting them into, is attentiveness, watchfulness. And he's inviting them into attentiveness because the sign is different than they think. The signs are different than they think. And in fact, what Jesus is, is going to say is that the signs that, that are dark, that actually that just look like darkness, are actually signs of redemption and possibility. You're going to go about your life. You're going to see things that look like impending doom. They're going to bring distress and foreboding. But those signs, through me, those signs are not going to be signs of despair, but signs of my redemption and signs of possibility. This is actually something that Mary, the mother of Jesus, learned from uh, the beginning of her call uh, to, the, to the end, to Jesus' death, that the signs that seemed like a message of foreboding, of darkness, was actually a sign of redemption and possibility. So Jesus is, is preparing his disciples for the most important sign. The one sign that makes sense of all the other signs, that makes sense of everything else. And that sign is the sign of the cross in the empty tomb. And it's that sign that's going to flip on its head all the other signs. The point of, of what Jesus is getting at with his disciples here is to not be distracted. To not be distracted by all the other signs of darkness, but to let their lives be reconfigured by the sign of Jesus' cross and resurrection. To be attentive, to be watchful for how the sign of Jesus' cross and resurrection is going to be a sign of God's dawning, the dawning of his redemption. And so Jesus calls his disciples out of triumphalism. He calls them out of a posture of needing uh, to have power to take control, to know the answers, to figure out, to decode the signs. And he also calls them out of despair. He calls them, there's a word that our translation uses that I really like. He calls them out of dissipation. That's not a word that I use very often. Anybody use the word dissipation like regularly day to day? I didn't think so. Uh, dissipation evokes this imagery of kind of like deintegration and descent. Because what Jesus is talking about is he's, he's calling them out of the kind of despair that leads to the de- disintegrating the, the, the descent of our humanity, of what it means to be fully human. I don't, I don't know why, and maybe this won't be helpful to you, but the image that comes into my head when I think about dissipation and I think about this de- disintegration is like some of those um, sequel hero movies. Like where the movie opens up and you see the, the, the superhero who, was like, who saved the day in the movie before and was like this big, confident person, and you find them like in a bar somewhere, like, you know, 100 pounds overweight, like just totally lost vision of who they are. And someone comes in and they're like, the world is falling apart. And they're just like, whatever. <laughs> Who cares? You know? 
That's like, that's what Jesus is inviting his disciples out of. In between the first and second advent. The kind of despair that leads to dissipation. The disintegration of what it means to be truly human. So he says, don't be weighed down. Don't be weighed down, but watch. Be attentive, because God's redemption is dawning. And so he gives the lesson of the fig tree and of all trees. I like that. I forgot that it said that. He's like, and now here's the lesson of the fig tree and of all trees. (laughs) That's just funny to me. But the, the, the lesson is this. The lesson is this, is that there's actually, it's actually possible. It's actually possible for a thing to have arrived and to see signs, to see real tangible signs of the thing that has arrived and yet it not be here in full. Redemption is drawing near. Redemption is here, Jesus says. But the time has not yet come in which we have seen its full budding. We are between the first and the second advent. And now, Jesus says, we can live now as if that fullness is present, but there's more to come. We can live now. We can embody that hope that the fullness is actually present. It's actually here, but there's more to come. I say, that's a word that we use around here a lot, embody, and I use it intentionally because I, I mean what Jesus is inviting us into here is beyond just thinking about it, but to actually taking steps to embody as if something is, is actually here, but there's more to come. When I was in Chicago, and maybe it's a little bit like this around here, uh, this happened every spring um, because about April in, in Chicago every year, there would be a day because like for three or four months, it was just gray and cold and snow covered everything. And everyone like was like bundled up in these big coats and they didn't like looking at other people and they just kind of huffed around a lot. But there would be this day in like April when the sun would come out and it would just be like only like 40 degrees. And I would still be super freezing cold. But it's like, oh, wait a second, something's coming, the spring is coming, and then almost all Chicagoans would like, it's still like 40 degrees, but they would put on their like shorts and Hawaiian t-shirts and flip-flops and just like, like walk about. They're living, they're embodying the hope that summer's coming, but it's not yet here. This is what Jesus is getting at. There's more to come. Christ the King, it's so easy to fill, to try to numb ourselves through the craziness of our days. It's so easy to, to, to just get to the end of the day, be like, what in the world happened today? I don't know. My kid pooped on me twice. Things were, I got crazy emails. Like, the, I haven't even done the dishes. I don't even know what's happening. To just try to numb through that, to be overcome by despair. Christ the King, although the world is maybe falling apart around us and it feels like in us, the pressure isn't on us. The pressure isn't on us to fix, to figure out, or to even decode all the things. Redemption is drawing near, and we are not in charge. We are free to embody the hope that God's redemption is drawing near, even in the dark. We don't have to be alarmist. We don't have to be passive. We can be watchful. Embodying hope through attentiveness, through watchfulness, looks a lot like patience. It looks a lot like patience. And let me say a little bit of what I mean by that, because I think that could be misunderstood. By patience, I don't, I don't mean you just need to accept your lot in life. You just need to accept it. Don't you know that good things come to those who wait? 
There's kind of a passivity to that. That's not what I mean by patience. What I mean by patience is the refusal to respond to the darkness in the way that the world strategizes and responds to the darkness. It's the refusal to respond to the darkness with the strategies and the techniques that the world tells us through triumphalism or despair to respond to the darkness. Because I don't know about you, but I do my craziest stuff when I'm getting impatient. Can I get an amen? Like when stuff comes out of me that like I'm even embarrassed to share with you that comes out of me, it comes out of me when I'm impatient. When I think that there's not enough. When I think that there's not enough time. When there's not enough whatever. That's when all of the darkness starts to come out of me. Impatience always leads to strategies of the world to accomplish the redemption of God. This is what Jesus is saying to his disciples. He's saying some things are going to happen and you're going to feel impatient. You're going to feel the need to accomplish the things of God with the strategies of the world, but you don't have to do it. Just be patient. Just be watchful. Just cultivate hope and attentiveness. Actually, this is exactly what happened uh, a number of decades after Jesus' death and what he's talking about a little bit here in Luke 21. There was a revolt in Jerusalem. There was this group of Jews who who violently wanted to trigger the day of God's redemption by overthrowing Rome. And Rome, if you guys remember your history, came down with a really heavy hand, and it did. It destroyed the temple. Not one stone was left on another. Jesus is saying, this kind of stuff is going to happen, but you don't need to use the strategies of the world in order to accomplish the redemption of God. Your job is to be attentive, to be watchful. So patience... Embodying hope is not inaction, it's not passivity, but it's the kind of action, it's the kind of attentiveness, of watchfulness, that is not anxious or afraid, it's not threatened or insecure. It's watching, it's attentive to the day of redemption. Two, two examples of what this looks like. Uh, one is that I think that Mr. Rogers is getting at what this looks like. And I don't know if you've heard him talk about looking for the helpers. Mr. Rogers, in, in several places, tells the story of how his mom, when he was growing up, whenever there was a big disaster, whenever like, all this news of, of uh, despair and foreboding came on, that uh, his mom said, look for the helpers. Look for the seams of redemption that are, that are dawning, that are bubbling forth, even in the midst of what seems like utter despair. I think Mr. Rogers is getting at it. There's also another story um, that was relayed to me uh, from a friend of mine. Um, I'm, I'm going to read a first-person account of this, so bear with me as I read this. Uh, this is a story um, of a guy named Jose Valentino. And Jose Valentino is a professor at Lee University uh, in Tennessee. And this is his voice, first-person narrative. He says, uh, Today I was verbally attacked by a woman who had a problem with me parking next to her at Discount Tires in Cleveland, Tennessee, for being Hispanic. Jose's Hispanic. When I parked next to her and got out of the car, she said, I want to tell you something. You are so disrespectful. You could have parked anywhere else, and you chose to park right next to me. You should know your place, boy, among us in this town. I replied, 
Madam, I'm, I'm sorry I parked next to you. I didn't realize it was a problem for you. Please forgive me. The discount tires employee was standing next to her and did not utter a word. The lady replied, If you want to live in this town, you need to learn very quickly your place among us. An overwhelming patience with her overtook me, and I replied, Madam, Christ loves you, and I want to let you know that I love you too. The lady replied, You are not a Christian. I am a Christian. Don't fake like you're a Christian. People like you aren't Christians. The discount tires employee was standing next to her and did not utter a word. I replied, Madam, I love you, and I am a Christian. Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior, and you are my sister in Christ. I love you the way Christ loves you, and he wants to take away your burden. She replied, I don't want you to love me. I replied, that's okay. Jesus loves you regardless, and I love you regardless. The lady then cried and stayed in her car. He says, the lesson learned here, folks, is that love is the answer, and it can diffuse discriminatory situations. It's not easy. It's not easy. The heart is heavy, and the light is dim. But Christ's love is the only thing I resorted to, not cursing her out, not making her feel dumb, not pulling the race card, just loving her. Needless to say, the employee told me he was shocked at her behavior and even more shocked as to why I was responding to love. My student, Jalil Muhammad, was there to witness the event as he was with me, and he witnessed how Christ's love can conquer all darkness. Now on to be the light he has called us to be. That woman in the story was probably acting out of despair. She was probably acting out of a story um, that her world was falling apart, the world that she knew, and she felt trapped, and she was probably acting out of that. But because Jose was able to tend to, to be watchful and attentive, he didn't respond to her with the strategies of the world. But he, he was able to respond to her by embodying the hope that God's redemption was drawing near, even in her life. And he was able to be a witness, a sign of God's hope, that God's redemption was dawning. Christ the King, even in the darkness, God's redemption is dawning. And embodying this hope means that we can take the dark seriously around us and in our lives without despair. The question for us tonight is, can we begin to notice the buds of hope sprouting around us? Can we begin to notice the buds of hope sprouting around us? This attentiveness uh, probably begins with the small things in our life. Like, it's, like we, don't, we can't go to like, like senior level like stuff, like global crises, before we can, and, and even work our way down from there until we tend to the smallest bits of our life, looking for buds of hope in the smallest things of our life, beginning around our tables and the people who are around our tables, with our family, beginning with all the feels that we have when we drive across town, just beginning in the small places. I want to also proclaim um, to you guys tonight that, that part of what this looks, may look like for you is just simply being present. Attentiveness may mean just simply being present uh, to yourself, to others, and to God, even though you, all you feel is doubt and despair. 
There's grace for that. You, all you may feel is doubt and despair, but being watchful and attentive just may just mean just showing up to be present to yourself, to others, and to God. Something that we've been talking about that we'll continue to press into is lament. Lament is, is, a, is a way to, to embody hope in the midst of darkness. It's a way to hold space, to hold tension that, that we're living in between this real darkness and the dawning of God's redemption. And in fact, that's the uh, uh, kind of response that I want to invite us into 